Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just uh, pray for your intercession at this time, Lord, that uh, my words are your words, that uh, I'm not up here on my own accord, but I'm up here on your accord, Lord. Heavenly Father, we just pray that this message touches all of our hearts, that we all can leave here knowing something more about you, something more about ourselves. And I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So out of all the epistles that Paul wrote, three were considered uh, pastoral epistles. Titus received one of those. Timothy received two of those. This is the first one. I think this one was first, then Titus, and then second, Timothy. And before we just jump right into the verses we're going to cover today, um, I didn't know how familiar people would be with Timothy's story and his relationship with Paul, which we're going to talk about as we go through this. But Timothy's backstory um, is that he was about a young teenager when Paul came to Lystra, where uh, Timothy and his mom and his grandma lived, and, and uh, he preached the gospel. Um, Timothy would have been a Galatian. His father was a Greek, but we don't know anything really about his faith. Um, but mom and grandma were faithful Jewish women, and they taught the Old Testament scriptures to Timothy. And all three of these became believers uh, when they heard Paul preach. When Paul eventually came back to Lystra a couple of years later on his second journey, he invited Timothy to come along. Kind of scary, but what an honor. And that was the beginning of about a 13-year discipleship uh, that Timothy had under Paul. Now, Timothy's name actually comes up quite a bit in the accounts of Paul's ministry and in his letters to the churches. So we can take from that that Timothy became this trusted, integral part of Paul's, uh, Paul's ministry. In Romans, Paul refers to him as my fellow worker, which reveals this, to me, a real humbleness about Paul, that he was about team building and not really lording it over those that he, he discipled. Well, most of them would agree that Timothy wasn't an apostle of Jesus Christ in the same sense that Paul was. Uh, there's a lot of references that, uh, that Paul shares uh, in his uh, apostolic ministry. And this, again, gives us these the insights into Paul's humility in his ministry. And in 2 Corinthians, he and Paul are both referred to as Christ's ambassadors. In 1 Thessalonians... Paul refers to himself, Silas, and Timothy as apostles of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Timothy was doing the Lord's work just as I am. And it's also significant that Paul shared his writing credit with Timothy uh, no less than about six times. And I think that's an amazing, pu amazing public recognition by Paul that Timothy shared in his ministry. And that's a sign of a good leader. A good leader leads when it's necessary to lead. I can stand back and let others work. Now in 1 Corinthians, we get a picture of how these guys work together. They had a method. 
that shows that Paul and those who worked with him, not just Timothy, were frequently on the move, and that Timothy was often either left behind for a time in some place, or he was sent ahead. The places where Timothy ministered were consistently places where Paul had been or where he was going. And this going ahead or staying behind was a distinctive characteristic of Timothy's ministry. And it reinforces again this trust that Paul had in Timothy and in his ministry work. So when Paul sent Timothy ahead or left him behind, what was he supposed to do? What was his job? Well, in 1 Corinthians, we read that he was sent to Corinth to remind the people of Paul's ways and teachings. In 1 Thessalonians, we read that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica to strengthen and to encourage these people in their faith. So I think we can safely say that Timothy was an encourager. He was a supporter. And he was there to keep people on track by reminding him reminding them, pardon me, of the ways and the teachings of Paul, which, as we know, were based on the ways and the teachings of Jesus. So it's not surprising when we can open our Bibles and read this letter and find out that Timothy is sent to Ephesus just prior to the time of this letter. And the reason he was sent was to stop those who were teaching in, uh, whose teaching was contrary to the truth. Boy, the world needs a, a Paul today in a lot of churches. Not that anyone would probably listen. He wasn't there to take over as pastor, per se, of the church, although he probably did, or possibly did, uh, step in in that role for that time. He was there to correct the problems that had worked their way into the teachings that were going on there. Okay. And because things were, were somewhat trying in Ephesus, it was, being, it was difficult, this letter was sent by Paul to encourage Timothy and to help re redirect these people. Get them back on track again. You know, there had always been opposition to the Christian church in Ephesus. There's always opposition to the Christian church. There's always going to be. And in Ephesus, it was especially so among those who made a living with idol worship and religious rituals. They made money off of this. They didn't want anybody affecting their income. But now on top of this and, or these outside pressures that were going on, there was this ongoing turmoil inside the church. Pressure to incorporate other teaching, other beliefs. And Timothy has a battle on his hands and it doesn't take long for him to be pushed to the end of his rope. He isn't respected. He isn't well liked by many of the believers. He's considered to be too young. And when you put all of this together, it's no wonder Timothy, Timothy's feeling overwhelmed and he's ready to pack it in. Paul can't be there, so he sends this letter. And I was thinking about that. Just the, the power that a letter can have. I don't know if we give letters as much credit today as we used to. Um, maybe it's this, this generation of electronics that we're in. Um, maybe it's just 
because I'm an old guy and remember letters were all there was uh, back when I was a kid. Um, but you know what? When I see a written note or a letter, I think of the time and the energy and the thought and the consideration that's gone into that for whoever's going to be reading that letter. And when that letter is from an authority figure or an authority organization, it carries weight. I got a letter from uh, Revenue Canada. <laughs> day, before, day before yesterday. I hadn't even opened it. And I had this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm like, oh, I paid everything. What's wrong? And it might not have been anything wrong, but you're just like, oh. And it was wrong. It got straightened out. It's all fine. But it carries weight. Susan, my wife, still has letters from her. Uh, she calls her her wean, her wean on from England uh, that she got when she was a little girl. And you know what? She can pull them out and read them. And it's as if her wean Ann is speaking to her right then, right at that moment. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that. A handwritten letter carries with it a feeling that part of the writer is right there in person. And that's the case with this letter from Paul. It's his being there without being there. And the first thing that Paul does is he reminds this group of his authority. Timothy knows his authority. Timothy's been with him a long time. Timothy doesn't need to be reminded of who Paul is. This letter is sent to Timothy, but it's also meant for this church. So we can conclude that this was for the church. This letter was for the elders. And Paul starts off with his credentials in verse 1, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul's credentials. He's an apostle. Paul's authority by the command of God. You know what? It doesn't matter if, if, if it's this church a couple of thousand years ago that's receiving this letter or, or a church today. We either respect Paul's position and Paul's authority that's given by God himself in his writings or we don't. That's our choice. But that choice comes with consequences. It comes with rewards. You know, we can jump ahead too in this timeline and into Revelation in chapter 2, which is interesting and, and goes on to describe what this church eventually becomes. They work hard for the Lord, have patience, endurance, pursue doctrinal purity, so something must have worked. You might say they got wise to the liars, but in all their zeal, Christ shakes his finger at them a bit and says, you lost your love. They got all charged up on their zeal and they lost their love. Spurgeon wrote, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. We can't have truth at the expense of love and we can't have love at the expense of truth. In today's age, a lot of churches, and, I'm not, and not this one, but there's a lot of churches that are starting to leave on, lean on, oh, it's just love, 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 love. And they leave a lot of truth out. 
There's churches out there, mega churches I read about. They don't talk about sin anymore because somebody who's paying some of the bills might get up and walk out the door. So they're controlled by their pocketbooks. We need both. We need truth and we need love. So again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. We've got the credentials. We've got the authority. And now Paul takes a moment and just reinforces his relationship between him and Timothy. Again, Timothy knows what the relationship is. But I think these people need to know what their relationship is. It's the equivalent of Paul saying, you know what? When Timothy speaks, I'm speaking. You can take my words and my authority as his words and his authority. And Paul goes on to say to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I got to tell you, if anybody here has ever raised up a disciple, there's a closeness. There should be. There should be that special thing that you have with that person that you've taken through discipleship. It's just a precious thing. My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Paul certainly prayed these things for the, for the whole church body but he is making a point, asking for these spiritual blessings and strength to be granted to Timothy right now, right at this moment in this church. And the first thing he says is grace. You know, one of the best known definitions of grace is, and we've all heard it, God's unmerited favor. And then A.W. Tozer took that and he expanded on it. He said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. And then a gentleman by the name of Burkhoff uh, even expanded it a little more. And he says, grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, effected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. I think grace, and I don't know about you, but I think grace can be an, a difficult concept to really understand and to grasp from our perspective. Why? Because the truth is grace is God's. We're trying to comprehend and, and live in something that is God's. It's not ours. You and I can't manufacture it on our own. We can try, but we inevitably turn it into something it isn't. There's a gentleman by the uh, an old, a pastor from the 1940s who was a German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was just reading a little clip of his, and I didn't put it all in here. I just put a bit in here, but he accused uh, some churches of teaching what he called cheap grace, that they can be guilty of preaching, among other things, forgiveness without repentance, communion without confession, baptism without church discipline, and many professing Christians today ignore the biblical truth that grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, 
and godly lives. And you can read that in Titus. Titus wrote that. And instead, many live as if grace were this supernatural, get-out-of-jail-free card. No strings attached. It's this open-ended package of amnesty and indulgence and leniency, immunity, approval, tolerance, and self-awarded privilege that separates, uh, that, that's, pardon me, separate from any moral obligations. But to me, you know what, if, we really, if you really want to learn about grace, and if you really want to see it in action, open your Bibles and watch Jesus. Jesus is all of God's grace manifested and personified to you and to me and for us. If we want grace-filled lives, we've got to have more Jesus-filled lives. Now, for me to sit up here and pretend that I'm um, an authority on grace, yeah, no. There's books and studies. There's so much about grace out there. Um, but what I do know is that grace is not weak and it's not compromising when it comes to the things of God. Why? Because Jesus was and is not weak or compromising in those things. Grace does not spare the truth ever because Jesus did not spare the truth. Grace does not cower because Jesus did not cower. I think when we open our Bibles, we can see grace take a lot of different forms. You know, we tend to hang on to it as that, well, you know, show grace, and we're like very peaceful. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? There's more to it than that. You look at John 2.14, it says, In the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temp t uh, tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Did he act without grace? I don't think so. This is a form of grace in action and, and it's in all its glory. Matthew 23, goes on, Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in, the, in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter, enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make, make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Now that word woe has a few different connotations. It quite possibly signifies impending doom, condemnation, and or the wrath of God. It also carries a sense of sorrow. 
But can you see God's grace in those words? It goes on to say, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Sorry, my machine is yelling at me here. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, I'm not sitting up here um, and saying, you know what, I want everybody to get all riled up and act rashly in the name of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, is to point out that God of all truth and grace was and is a force to be reckoned with. We, at times, have to be a force to be reckoned with. And just as Timothy is going to need to be that in this church, Jesus wasn't harsh here to be mean. He was not having a temper tantrum. Rather, love guided his actions. Jesus spoke firmly against the deception of Satan out of a desire for people to know the truth and to find life in him. If grace comes in anger, it has to be righteous anger. What's that? Well, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, his rights and concerns. Not on me, not on my kingdom, not on my rights, and not on my concerns. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities. And it expresses itself in godly ways. It stays uh, self-controlled. It keeps its head without cursing and screaming and raging or flying off the handle. So Paul rightly asks for grace for Timothy because Timothy needs to be able to stand and act in strength and truth in this church. The next thing Paul prays for for Timothy is mercy. He did it for, for Timothy here, and he did it for Titus. He added this mercy in. Why? Why mercy? Well, if you go to your Bible dictionary... It describes mercy as a concept integral to an understanding of God's dealings with humankind. Merciful is a quality of God. And it's a quality of God that he requires of you and me. I'm not always merciful, not always graceful. But the word merciful denotes compassion and it, de- and it denotes love. It's not just about feelings, it's not just about emotions. Timothy, like all of us, especially when our, we're at our wits end and we're fed up, we need to be tempered with mercy. Mercy carries with it a gift of time. And time is important because time allows for the opportunity for someone to have a change of heart. Time allows the opportunity for someone to have a change of attitude. 
time allows for someone to repent. Thank God that he is merciful. And like grace, mercy is a part of God's character, not ours. People have tried to have that capacity to show mercy, and sometimes we do. But you know what? It's generally toward people whom we have a special relationship already with. It's easy to, for me to be merciful with somebody that I know well. And sometimes not. A lack of mercy is more natural to our human condition. So is it any wonder why Paul asked for mercy to be laid on Timothy here? God's character of mercy is bestowed on Timothy, he's more likely to then pass on that same mercy to those he's correcting. Give them some time, time to change, time to repent. And finally, peace. Peace doesn't ever stand on its own. There can be no real peace, I don't think, without grace. And I think to prove that, all you got to do is look out in the world. Because there is no grace. We are becoming less and less full of grace as a, not, again, I'm not pointing the finger at you guys, but as a general population, the less grace we have, the less people are at peace. We know Jesus is grace. So we're assured that in his grace, that's where we're going to find that deep inner peace that we can feel as a Christian. And I read a testimony recently that was, I thought, quite powerful. It was by a pastor, Anthony Thompson, and you guys might know this story. Um, you might have read about that uh, massacre back in 2015 at the Charleston Church. And he was the pastor of that church. Uh, there were nine victims, all black, and his wife was one of them. And Pastor Anthony went to the bond hearing for the shooter, and people were given that opportunity to stand up and say something to this young man. Pastor Anthony didn't. He just got up to leave. And in his, in his testimony, he says that as he got up to leave, at that moment... God spoke to him, and he said, get up, I have something to say. And then he says he, heard, he had, didn't have any words, he had no idea what to say. He's hurting, but God did. And he said the words just came, and they could have been words of rebuke or condemnation, but instead God's message turned out to be words of forgiveness. And then Anthony basically begged this man to accept Jesus as his Savior. And immediately after, Anthony says he felt his rage and his anger and his burdens just leave his body. And he describes feeling as light as a feather and that he experienced peace like nothing else. He said that the peace that surpasses all understanding is real. God wants that peace for all of us, all his children, all his creation. 
And Paul is seeking this same deep inner peace along with God's grace, along with God's mercy as these spiritual weapons that Timothy needs to take into this spiritual battle that he's going to face in this church. And you know what? This battle was predicted by Paul years ago. You can read about it in Acts 20. He had this farewell to the Ephesian elders and he had this warning to the elders that he left behind. And he said, pay careful attention to yourselves. I think that's so powerful because they're the ones that are going to be doing the teaching. Pay a careful attention to yourselves. It's like when they tell you when you're in a plane and the oxygen masks drive, drop down, put your own on first. Pay close attention to yourselves and then to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You know, it sounds to me like this church had all they needed to be and to stay healthy. But Paul warns them that it will be a constant battle to stay healthy. And a few years later, his prediction comes to fruition. And he has to send Timothy up there, go clean up the mess. And it must have been quite a mess because Timothy was at his wit's end and ready to pack it in. And if you go and ever read about the statistics for pastors. Um, today they show that some 80% of pastors are discouraged. So Timothy isn't an anomaly here. Thank the Lord he had Paul who knew how to support him, knew how to guide him, and just didn't cut him loose and leave him on his own. The truth is, every one of us has to, at times... Take the role of a Paul for somebody. Don't neglect that. You may have to take the role of a Paul for somebody. And you may have to take the role of a Timothy. And how Paul knew this letter was needed, I have no idea. Could have been divine inspiration. Could have been word of mouth. It could have been just plain experience. But Paul knows Timothy needs help, needs encouraging, needs urging to stay and fight that good fight for the health of that, that body. Verse 3 and 4. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remember at Ephesus, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and end endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So they're teaching a different doctrine. They're devoting themselves to myths or fables, false stories, endless genealogies. What that means, eh. um, it could have meant uh, endless genealogies that had to do with uh, Gnostic teachings or Jewish-type legalism that sought righteousness by virtue of one's ancestry. Uh, you know, really, who cares? It doesn't really matter. 
what matters if it's that would, is that they were not keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. They were getting sidetracked with this ir- bunch of irrelevant issues. They were incorporating false beliefs and not teaching Jesus. Or if they were, they were changing it. Satan loves to distract the church. Loves it. Loves getting people in church to argue about things that have no bearing on true salvation. And then turn them loose and just let them devour themselves. He also just loves to insert something into the salvation message. Something that alters it just a little. That's all it takes. Jesus plus something. There's those, those that teach, well, it's Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. Oh, Jesus, but you've got to be baptized. It's Jesus, but you, gotta, you better be working for it. And now we have Jesus, but it's prosperity. It's the prosperity church and the progressive church. You've read anything about the progressive church? Whatever it is, it doesn't take much to start people down a wrong path. That's why we're called sheep. Paul warned this church, and it's a warning for every church. Fierce wolves will come in among you, so be ready. Later, Paul writes and tells Timothy, it's later on in Second uh, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you always be sober minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry quick story um we had a woman that came to church uh, one time, um, not this church. We were in North Van at the time, and, and she was a Baha'i. And it's a great opportunity. Somebody of a different faith comes in, they're going to hear the Word of God. And she came every Sunday, and she'd hear the Word of God, and she got to hear the gospel, and she got to hear the, the worship, and she eventually stayed for our corporate pray time, uh, which we had after church. And little did I know at the time or anyone else that she was in there f- because she had other motives. The first time she came to prayer, she, she uh, jumped in to pray, or rather chant. And my wife told me afterwards, she said, you know what, as soon as she started, she said, I just felt this heavy darkness. And she immediately started, I didn't feel it, but she immediately started praying against this. Now, right or wrong, I made the decision not to kick her out of church. I made the decision not to kick her out of prayer because she was being exposed to God's word and his people. And God says his word doesn't return empty. But what I did do was when she came to prayer, I, in grace, a little firmly, said, you can't pray. You can listen. See how we pray. See who we pray to. But you can't participate until 
she had a change of heart. I'm not going to have somebody sitting and praying to a false god in church. Not going to happen. Unless she's doing it quietly in a corner where I'm not aware of it. Then one of the ladies, Anna, informed uh, Susan, I think, that she had invited this young lady uh, to come for tea to her house. And the woman spent the entire time trying to convert Anna to be a Baha'i. And I still didn't kick her out. Again, because she was being exposed to God's word. But you know what? Also, I trusted the foundation of that church. That church was firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, not my doing. I can't take credit for that. I was building on somebody else's foundation. When a church is rooted firmly in Christ, then as Matt pointed out last week, uh, if we are listening and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on God's word, Satan himself can walk through that door, have a seat in the back, and he will either have a change of heart or he'll get up and walk back out the door because he can't turn anybody against Jesus Christ. He can't get anybody stirred up for anything else. And that's what happened. That wolf in sheep's clothing eventually left and never came back. And <laughs> my wife would probably kill me if I, she knew I was telling you, but it might have been how she shared the gospel too because there was a lot of patience with this young lady, a lot of praying for her and talking to her. And my wife sat down at one point to share the gospel again, and they were in the back. And this woman was just not hearing and then started arguing about it. And I remember Susan just kind of said, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> that may be why she left. But uh, you just say it. Matthew 7, 24, 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine does them, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This church is on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears th these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. If we step off the rock, we're going to lose our way. The fruit of these man-made, Satan-driven diversions going on in this church in Ephesus is chaos. And they might be popular, and they might be fascinating in the short term, but in the long run, they don't build up the body of Christ in faith. And now from here, Paul goes on to explain what these teachers should be doing in verse 5. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. What does that mean? Our goal, our charge as messengers of the gospel, that includes all believers, not just the pastor, is to follow Jesus' commands, the greatest of which is love, agape love. To love the Lord thy God with all one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's about unselfish love, a full loyalty to God, and boundless goodwill to our fellow man. And that kind of love comes from a pure heart, a Christ heart. 
And that kind of love comes from a good conscience. And in order to, for conscience to be good, it can't be offensive to God. And it can't be offensive toward man, men. All this comes from sincere, it says, faith. Unhypocritical faith. So that's our charge. It doesn't mean that we can't have discussions about trivial things and ideas. What we have to be mindful of is that those trivial things don't become the message. That they don't cause us to stray from Jesus in our churches because if they do, before we realize, this, before we realize it, Jesus is left sitting in a corner somewhere. And God forbid, maybe not even invited in anymore. You know, we are so blessed um, to have a pastor and a teacher in this church. And the same with my old church that I threw out there, like an ex-girlfriend's name. Um, we are, we're so blessed to have a pastor in this church that builds a strong foundation on Jesus and the Word of God and disciples others to do the same. This church in Ephesus was, wasn't so blessed. They were victims of this false teaching and speculation and were susceptible to what we read in Ephesians of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Whereas the true church of God, Paul writes, speaks the truth in love so as to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, oh, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love in Jesus. So the aim of our charge is that love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith Certain persons, he says, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These false teachers were big on saying nothing of real value. You can go to some of those self-help tapes sometimes you listen to, and it, like, they just use big words and they ramble on, and you go, okay, that just really has no value. They were guilty of saying nothing that edified the body, nothing that built faith, nothing that gives hope, nothing that produced holiness. Only Jesus does that. And what were they teaching? Well, a lot of it was the law, which they apparently had no clue about. They didn't know about its content, didn't know about the law's true purpose. They were leading believers, believers out of their liberty and their freedom that they had found in grace and back into the bondage of legalism. And the flesh loves religious legalism. Why is that? Well, because we love that challenge. It's the look what I can do mentality. Just the striving to keep rules and regulations enables us to feel and appear holy, at least on the outside. And the bonus is, we don't really have to change on the inside. We 
We don't have to change the heart because nobody can see it except God, of course. So what was the law for? Well, Paul finishes off today talking about the point of the law, its usefulness to expose, restrain, and convict the lawless. The law does not save, cannot save, will never save. Otherwise, Jesus died for nothing. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law reveals the need for the Savior, for Jesus. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we accept his sacrifice and we are freed from the curse of the law. The righteous demands of the law met by perfect atoning sacrifice. Romans 8, 1 to 11 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. To this, Paul was entrusted. And to Timothy, this was entrusted. To this, you and I are entrusted. I'll invite the worship team to come back up here again. I'll finish off by saying, you know what? Stay rooted in Christ. Be ready in and out of season. Listen to God's word. Read God's word. Memorize God's word. Meditate on God's word. There's nothing, there's, uh, these are the things that we do that will make us strong men and women of God and keep our church on track. Let's pray.